when we record and we release it, nobody hears any of the scraps. <laughs> it's a very professional operation that we have going on here, Derek. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Retro Time Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Derek. Derek, how was your Halloween, dude? You guys uh, ate all kinds of candy and uh, stuffed yourself with chocolate? We did. We have a pretty nice. big neighborhood, so the kids walked around. There was a lot of people out dressed in spooky outfits. Yeah. I dressed as a cowboy, okay? Put a cowboy hat on. Oh, nice. That's it. Now, I had to clarify to my team that I also had clothes on. Not just a cowboy hat. <laughs> You're like, all I had was a cowboy <laughs> All I had was a cowboy hat on. They were I like, I feel what? like a Halloween especially, that's 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 a cause for dismissal. I feel like you get yeah. cops call, you're going to jail. Yeah, no, yeah, no too question. many kids. Um, too many kids that just wear a hat. Even on one a kid's too many for that. Um, um, uh, Linus dressed up as a zombie, but his costume that we ordered, it was like the Plants versus Zombie costume. Okay. And the zombie has like a tie and a coat and stuff. Okay. So he's walking around and, every, and he didn't want to wear the mask. So everybody's like, oh, are you a businessman? <laughs> So I was telling everybody he was a software developer. That was his costume for Halloween. He looked very professional. <laughs> it's like, it's all, it's just so funny. Anyway, kids had a, kids had a blast. I, we forced them to like you know not eat so much candy, and mm-hmm. um, they weren't happy about that. I tell you what. Hey, what? I, yeah, I, I ate dark. all my kids' candy. So you ate all. That's the problem. I I, I don't want to eat all their candy. I just yeah. want to eat. I want to eat. You know, I don't want all the only temptation. I became a parent. I don't want all the temptation. That's the only reason. Yeah. Just to eat Double the candy. candy yeah. <laughs> Halloween and Easter, two of my favorite times of year. So, Derek, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a dude on LinkedIn that was posting about a a series about agile bullshit. And I thought, this is perfect for the show. This is exactly the kind of guy that we want on Retro Time. So mm-hmm. I found a dude. I found him uh, posting about agile bullshit, and I, I sent him a message. I said, his name is Jesper. And guess what? What? He, he said yes. He came, he came on the show. I don't know what he was thinking, but he's here today. So we got Jesper Bo on the show. This is exciting. Uh, Jesper's the author of three books, Real Life Agile, Priming Kanban, and Level Up Agile with Toyota Kata, as well as well-known speaker in numerous national and international conferences. He's helped more than 250 teams across 50-plus organizations, trained more than 3,000 people in Agile, Kanban, Scrum, Toyota Kata, and Lean Product Development. And since 2006... He's now the principal consultant at Agile Upgrade, where they provide training, consulting, mentoring, and coaching, helping organizations to lead their Agile transition. So, Jesper, it's great to have you on the show, and we are super stoked to talk about Agile bullshit that you see all the time in work. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Jeremy. So I'm curious, this this concept, this, all this agile bullshit, I, I assume it came from just all the stuff that you have to deal with as a consultant and a coach and all that. But tell us a little bit about where this idea, this agile bullshit idea came from and how'd you, how'd you get uh, started on it? Yeah, so it's actually a few years old and I've thought about it a lot. And now I had the time because we've just been traveling through the summer, three and a half months with the family. And now I came back and needed to find something to do. But in that period before uh, onboarding a new customer. I finally had some time to actually write stuff on uh, LinkedIn, et cetera. Uh, and, and these are just like 16 years of being frustrated about mm. how little we've progressed in 16 years and how we seem to be having the same type of discussion still. And, see, and this tendency to want to oversimplify stuff, uh, standardize stuff, uh, 
also where it's just not meaningful and where it becomes these method wars on agile mechanics, uh, arguing that one thing is better than the other and forgetting entirely about the, the value drivers behind those uh, mechanics and principles. So yeah, that's kind of where the frustration is. in the first place. I love yeah. it. All right. Well, I, what I'm interested in, Jasper, is if you wanted to just go through your list of agile bullshit, you want to just spend maybe a few minutes talking about each of them and we could uh, maybe just discuss it a little bit. So the first one was this notion of team-level agile mechanics being incredibly important for organizational success. And I think that's actually many of the others boil down to many of the same concepts involved in, in this one. And I've just seen it now for, for years. People will argue that if you don't do the whole scrum thing, then you're going to fail. And then it becomes a matter if you have two or three week sprints, or if you have the perfect product owner, or if you're doing sprint planning and no sprint plannings. And, and others will argue that if you have time boxes at all, you're going to fail because time boxes are essentially batching and it's forcing you to to put things in boxes that are not meant to be in this, those boxes, et cetera. And it seems that all those discussions seem to but just are ignoring the reality of all of those things exist out there in real life and some of them are doing great. So you'll find one team working with a shared product ownership across all team members. They're still doing fantastic. They have customer-centric focus. They work incredibly close with their customers and end users. They deliver frequently. They have a tight feedback loop and they use that feedback to make better decisions going forward. Uh, they might not have sprints. They might not have a product owner role. But would you ever go and argue to that team that there's something they should stop doing and mm. be closer to a scrum just because they're failing to live up to the framework? At least I wouldn't. And the same uh, notion, would you go and argue that it's, uh, to a team that is incredibly inspired by scrum, find those time box incredibly valuable, drives their focus, they feel that they achieve something every second week. Would you argue that they should be not happy about that because another team is doing something different if they're close to their customers as well, if they're delivering frequently, if they're using the feedback, if they have great sprint reviews where they invite a bunch of stakeholders in and, and find value in that ceremony. Uh, I wouldn't argue to them that they should do anything much different if they find a lot of value and they keep improving. But it seems that it becomes much more about whether you apply some checklist and you can put those checks next to all the boxes instead of arguing about the value drivers behind those mechanics and, and principles. Yeah. And that's still what gets me the most frustrated because people seem to be looking at an organization and they're seeing success and failures everywhere. And they just, they, when, once they get into those arguments, they ignore the reality that's out there and for all of us to see. And even relating to Scrum, right? Like how many teams have you, even if the framework is really, really simple, how many teams have you truly seen that would be able to check all the boxes that are in that Scrum guide? Uh, at least in 16 years, probably a handful uh, I've seen myself, right? So it's this idea that, you know, Scrum isn't gospel. Like you shouldn't be trying to follow it to the letter, to the word. Find what works for your team. This is something, Derek, I mean, we've talked with, when, when we talked with Doc Norton, he mentioned this specifically. Yeah. It was something like what works for one team isn't going to work for another team. Don't assume that these things are going to work across the board. They might not. Mm -hmm. It's funny because we're having this discussion after I just gave a, an impassioned, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually, it wasn't meant to be this way, but I just gave an impassioned uh, rant, I guess you might say, to my team about the core agile principles, individuals and interactions over processes and teams. And I walked through each thing and the principles themselves with the team. And it got me thinking like, it's, it's almost as if people are getting tired. They're getting tired of analyzing themselves when that really is the only way they're ever going to improve. 
is to analyze yourself, analyze your interaction with the people around you that you rely on. And I think that gets at the core of the bullshit people have been uh, telling themselves or maybe, or maybe falling into over the past few years, you know? Yep, yep, yep. And it's not that to me that there shouldn't be any kind of guardrails. It's not that if sure. we find a team that's working for six months and then they surface with a great solution and they want to implement it as a big bang thing out in the in the world and they fail spectacularly because uh, it's the wrong thing and users don't understand it and they spend way too much time on whatever. So obviously we should talk about those underlying agile value drivers in terms of the being able to slice things into smaller chunks, getting it out there quickly, self-organizing around the work instead of having a, a project manager, having some kind of wanting to create some type of value, some kind of strategic direction. So you're not just doing uh, something all over the place. But once you get beyond those value drivers, I just find that people are individuals. And what works mm -hmm. for one just doesn't seem to work for another. And sometimes right. it's just, just also just the historical baggage. If you come into a team and you've just been in an organization where Scrum just didn't work for you, then that baggage alone will almost guarantee that Scrum is not yeah. going to work for you here as well. While right, another right. person might come in there with just a huge uh, line of success with Scrum. And just because they've had that success, they're so inspired to get it to work in a different context that they're going to make it work uh, almost no matter the obstacles uh, around it. But again, the, yeah, back to the principle you mentioned about the individual's interactions over processes. And then we spend 95% of our time in Agile talking about the processes and tools. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and you, you got to pay gonna, for it too. You got to pay, yeah, pay for that certification. That's right. I, I was just saying. I was just going to mention that too. Isn't that the first one? Process yeah, over is. people. It yeah, what's the one uh, or people over process? And and it's funny because when you think about a lot of the scrum masters that I've worked with in the past, not every one of them, obviously, some of them are, are not this way, but a lot of them tend to preach the process over the people often, and it's like that is the first line item you know and when we when we talk with bob martin too about this it was it was specific, one of the interesting things i took away there was it wasn't that they don't care about the things on the right it's just that the things on the left are more important so the process is important but the people are more important so figure out what process works for those people it's not just you don't have a process or it's not you follow process over anything else it's find the process but 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 tailor it to the people on the team that was one of the interesting things that I, that I took away from that conversation. And it's funny because I just see so much hypocrisy in this, this agile framework, methodologies, coaches, uh, you know, uh, like you just mentioned all the, the certifications and stuff. And they always seem to adopt that process before people, which I always found to be extremely hypocritical. All right. So that's a good one. So let's talk about the next one. Managers shouldn't be trained to stay away from and trust teams. I found this one to be really interesting. Yeah, so I think like we sometimes we get either of two. We get an interpretation of agile that basically means that you keep all the micromanagement in place and then you have some teams running Scrum or something else and they are, you expect them to run a bit faster. But everything around the team structure or whatever, it's, it's largely the same. The same type of management going on, the same type of portfolio prioritization going on, the same type of functional team structures, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of one uh, side of the story. And then we've got the others where people are almost thinking about agile as now we've got these teams and they're like kind of, kind of this holy grail and suddenly they have all the knowledge in the world to do all the great things and nobody else can pitch in with anything because that will kind of eliminate this notion of self-management, self-control, self-organization, etc. And I think we really need to talk about how we interface with the organization around us because I think neither of those cases are really going to 
align with a very effective organization because you have sometimes great leaders out there and they have years of experience in the product domain or they might have a great network in the organization in terms of who, to, who you can you can talk to about different problems. They might even have technical competencies. Uh, maybe they're former architects or whatever, and they can actually give those teams a lot of good help and advice. And I think the, the crucial point is just that, obviously, when we move to Agile, we don't want the decision mandate to rely outside the team. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to people. And I find the most helpful type of management or leadership and organizational to be that kind of sparing sessions going on at kind of a frequent basis where teams will explain, okay, so we intend to go ahead and, and do stuff. I'm really a big fan of the whole intent-based leadership mm -hmm. approach. Uh, and then they might get some suggestions. Okay, so that sounds really interesting, but going to that customer first, do you realize that we did that two years ago and that just failed spectacularly because they didn't set any time aside beyond that initial meeting. So at least be aware of that fact before you think of them as being the perfect early adopter. Or we're choosing to go around this road in terms of technical architecture or solutions. And uh, then they might not know that there are other teams that are doing exactly the same right now. And they might be able to use the same framework or the same kind of deployment pipeline or whatever they might. So just having this ongoing sparing I think that that's incredibly helpful. And just where we don't want the thing to tip is once we get to a problematic state and then we find the manager or the leader overruling a team decision and then we're right back where we where we started. But that kind of helpful intent-based leadership approach where we always talk about intent from a proactive, like before we go and execute, and we have conversations around whether we've covered the full band, whether we have access to the right people, the right customers, and building the right thing on the right technical solutions, et cetera. So that was kind of the notion that it's not either or, it's it's obviously we need trust, but we also need a great way of communicating around that. And, and the other thing I, I really hate is that those, those buzzwords where leaders are given half a day or a day of now agile leadership training, even though there's no such thing as, as agile leadership or agile management. And then they go ahead with buzzwords like now you should trust or now you should show leadership. And then they have such a hard time translating that into their day-to-day -day actions. Uh, so they end up sometimes on either ends of the, that scale I just mentioned in the, in the beginning. And it's no fault of their own because they were neither given any coaching. So we were kind of expecting from that half a day training, now that you are able to do this from day one. And we give the teams tons of coaching where they're, uh, maybe they have an, an agile coach assigned for the first two months where they're able to get feedback on whatever they're doing, if it's working or not, how they apply the roles, the principle, et cetera. But men, the managers, the leaders out there, they're getting zero support. Nothing, right? yeah. And it's a really difficult thing because when we think we're asking open questions, we're just asking really closed questions, uh, hidden as open questions, right? Uh, and there's such a high degree of that going on. Yeah. One, one of the things I kind of took away from this point, and I, I want you to tell me if I'm wrong here, was that in Agile, I guess, that you're sort of taught that teams should be autonomous, make decisions on their own and things like that. And, the, and what I hear you sort of saying is that the bullshit piece would be managers should let the teams just stay away, let them do their thing and, and give them complete trust. But I think the problem there is that on larger teams where you have multiple pods or teams, whatever you want to call them, uh, working on one product. They can't always just go off and be completely on their own. There has to be somebody above sort of making sure that teams are connected, teams are talking, that, that you know, dependencies are worked out and things like that. And you can't have these complete silos where the teams just do everything on their own. There has to be some sort of um, 
mechanism or maybe a position or somebody above them that is making sure processes are connecting or you know systems are connecting and things make sense for the product versus the team. Yeah, and I might accurate? slightly disagree with you there because I actually think many okay. of the things you mentioned there, we can safely uh, delegate that to the, the team members. So for, for, for me, it's really about two things. One is the kind of the coaching sparing, getting the knowledge from the organization uh, into that team. And I think leaders with years of experience can help a lot there. So it's not so much about the mandate and what they cannot and cannot decide. Okay. It's more yes. about the coaching aspect. The other is what kind of maybe closer to what you just mentioned, that may be the more the strategic direction. So for example, I worked with Novozymes recently and uh, they're in the enzyme and microorganism space. So that's not the IT at all, but let's imagine a team and they're focusing on toothpaste for dogs. And suddenly they find themselves wanting to go into the biofuel business instead. There we want some kind of alignment in terms of, okay, so your innovation space is really different from what we thought of you moving into here. And we have a whole division working on biofuel. So at least we need a discussion before you kind of change the strategic innovation space and the scope of the work you're, you're doing. And there, I think, maybe more of a traditional top-down management approach makes more sense to make sure that at least there's some, some kind of high-level strategic alignment. Okay, uh, so it's so. more, like I think you mentioned, that manager is coach, right? Manager being involved, not staying away completely, but sort of coaching them, helping them to come to the decisions on their own versus top-down. Is that is that more accurate? What you're trying yeah. to say. And then it's ensuring that strategic alignment across the organization. But again, leaving the tactical and operational decision mandate with the, with the yeah. team. Yeah. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And when, and when there's the core business, if that ends up changing, then alignment may need some higher level coordination, I guess you were saying. And sometimes it's just natural, right? Because let's imagine a team and they've been focusing entirely on China. And China is just not a good market to be in anymore. There might be for political reasons, for economical reasons, whatever. The yeah. chance that a team that invested like two years of their energy in China will on their own conclude that they should get out of China, that might be less likely to happen. So there's oh, sometimes true. we also just need to make strategic decisions, maybe yeah. also for political reasons that it's simply, it, it doesn't reflect well on our brand to collaborate with, uh, with a country like Russia right now. Yeah, it might fair. be that we're pulling the plug on Russia, not because this product is not successful, but because the long-term effect on our brand is simply not going to be that great right now from uh, from being in that, uh, that space. Makes a lot of sense. That's what you got. What's the next one? Okay. Yeah. So I think that might be uh, the one that's uh, that some people will disagree with, but it's, it's called Agile Scaling Frameworks are a good idea. Uh, and that's not the full story. So I think what I wrote was Agile... Scaling frameworks are not a great idea to scale agile inside organizations. And I think that's probably where most people get this just at least from my perspective, entirely wrong. So from my perspective, all the scaling frameworks out there, they are meant to deal with the problem of many, many teams working on the same product. Mm. That means that you have a single product and you want a lot of people to collaborate. And then we can discuss whether the, all the scaling frameworks out there are great at that or whether they just add more complexity and more coordination or they keep roles, coordination practices, dysfunctional architectures, et cetera, in place rather than help solve it. But that's not really the, what this blog was about. It was more about organization using scale, scaling frameworks as a way to drive agile transitions. 
And that mm-hmm. is, a, at least from my point of view, that is a really, really stupid idea because then you just start from the other end of the spectrum, right? Instead of talking about how we can make business units, teams, whatever, as autonomous as possible, we basically start by concluding they're not autonomous at all. And now we need them all to coordinate around something that doesn't need coordination. And I've literally seen that happen. I've seen 180 people being in a room trying to coordinate stuff that, that didn't need to be coordinated at all. And almost coming up with dependencies and coordination issues because they were there to do that stuff. right. And I think mm-hmm. that's where we just get it really, really wrong as a, as a community. So one part of the discussion is, should we use scaling frameworks to deal with many teams working on the same product? And I'll be happy to discuss that, but I don't think that's the point of, of, of this one. And the other one is then when we want to make organizations agile, shouldn't we start trying to make business units, teams, team families, or whatever we want to call them, as autonomous as possible so they don't need to spend all that time uh, trying to coordinate uh, across? And then we start to find out what scaling practices do we need when we've done everything we possibly can to get rid of the need to do all that cross-team, cross-organization, cross-business unit alignment. That's really interesting. I'm in a situation uh, in my current role where uh, the work that I do uh, requires you to be a U.S. person in order to see the product in production. And so many of the developers are not U.S. people. And so it creates a, they can't go end-to-end and see their work, and they also can't fully test it properly due to the structure of the teams, things like that. And the architecture itself limits their ability to be autonomous. And so all these things are playing against them. It's interesting to like, just think, where do you start? You know, I mean, if, if everything seems to be a problem, where do you start? You know, that's one of, one of the big puzzles of, uh, of transforming an organization. And I think this uh, this has been a constant frustration for me doing 16 years of working with Agile and Agile <laughs> teams. And, and it, it just seems to pop up again and again and again. And I find myself almost giving the same talk, same speech, same explanation, like hundreds of times, even to the same team or the same people several <laughs> times. And people still think that predictability is the same as effectiveness. So the notion that you can plan how much work you want to do and then do that work in the time uh, you had available uh, and planned to. That that seems to be just automatically in people's minds that equates to you being a really effective structure. But it's not like there might be a correlation because if you can do that, you might be reasonably good at slicing stuff so they're not too big. Uh, You might also be reasonably good at using some kind of data-driven approach to finding out how much you can do. So you're not just working 50 hours of overtime to achieve that goal every time. But the fact that there should be a direct causation between your ability to plan and working effectively, I just don't buy that. So so this notion of of one equaling the other, I just think that's that may be one of the, the things that I've seen most often happening in, in organization. And just explaining to people that I could achieve the exact same thing I would just put in a huge buffer. Uh, so I would hit that mark every single time. And I'm pretty sure you wouldn't consider me very effective uh, <laughs> just for being able to provide a 40% buffer on all the work we're doing. So this is interesting because this is a topic that, you know, we, like I mentioned, we, we've had Doc Norton on the show and he's written a book called Escape Velocity 
uh, or really it's more like it's the way to principally escape velocity because you want you to get get away from using things like velocity to to track uh, the effectiveness of your team. And I'm curious from your perspective, what would be better indicators of an effective team from your perspective? And and to me, it's probably again back to those value drivers that we talked about in the beginning. So. Are they able to explain why they're in a certain innovation space, why they're building a product? So that high-level strategic direction, what mode, what gets them up in the morning? Why do they think this particular product is making the world a better place for them or their users or whatever you're, you're targeting? Uh, are they able to have a shorter lead time so that when they start work and it needs to at some point arrive at some customers and end users, is that time short enough? Uh, so if that time is short enough, then you've dealt with both them being able to work outside in, meaning they're not just doing technical stuff that uh, nobody cares about. And you're talking about their ability to work more with the vertical slicing strategy where it doesn't become one horizontal layer at the, at the same time. Are they then able to actually have a conversation with the real world around whether that was the right thing to do or not? So again, that's uh, closing the feedback loop. And I think that's, again, quite of an important so if we just put it out there, then it's it might be incremental development, but it's, there's not much iterative development uh, in the process. And then maybe, again, this notion of if the team is driven by a single person coordinating all the work, who should be doing what, at what place in time, uh, please make sure that that bug is corrected by four o'clock this afternoon, or who is going to look at this particular issue or user story. Then again, we're so far away from the whole self-organization aspect that I will also consider that kind of a, a not ideal setup for, for typical agile team. And then obviously there's the whole technical foundation underneath. So how much of this, are you able to deploy continuously on demand as requested, or are you literally bound up by having to do six weeks of integration tests before you release? I think that's probably also a thing where that some organizations tend to ignore, especially in the beginning, that they don't really have the, the technical practices follow all the other great things going on in the, in the organization. So, But the, I would focus much more about that compared to a, your ability to follow a strict Scrum framework or your ability to meet a specific time box. And I find in general, even if people want to uh, work with by-the-book Scrum, they can do themselves a lot of favors in terms of relaxing that notion of the strict time box just slightly. So that's uh, maybe just if you have a, if you want to use velocity, some people really fall in love with that concept and you can do an average of 120 story points, then maybe just look at your data and see what are we hitting eight out of 10 times. And, and if you can do 80 points, eight out of 10 times, then maybe build your whole notion of a sprint goal, et cetera, around those 80 points rather than the 120, and then leave a slight buffer of work you've already groomed and made ready, and then you can pull it in if it turns out you have more capacity than those 80 points. Then you can relax the whole thing. The time box doesn't become so much of a batching exercise, and you don't stress the system as much, and you don't have people having to do overwork and be tired for the next sprint, et cetera. Interesting. In your journey, in your journeys through consulting, working with teams, I was wondering if you found a correlation. So I, I, I've noticed this correlation myself, but I have limited experience. Teams who have an attention to detail when it comes to the quality of their software, are we meeting our goal? Do we care about that the software is built, that it can be changed very easily? those kinds of things, and just a deep care about how the code is written, how the software is written, specifically in the software space. Have you seen that correlate to 
effectiveness more than people who follow their processes just right? Yeah, and I actually think it goes beyond that. I think it, it, you can expand that to caring about not only your technical foundation, but caring about the product as well. So the teams that really care about the solution they're building and truly believe they're creating something that will make the world a better place and truly care about the long-term perspective of keeping a technical foundation that they can keep building on. Uh, I think those two correlate to much, much higher degrees of effectiveness. But I think one thing I've seen over and over again is then managers telling me that my team is not that kind of team. They're more the kind of team that plugs in their eight hours a day and then they go home and they enjoy being there with their kids and, and family. So we don't have that kind of environment here. So please pay, pay attention to that, Jesper, when you go into to my organization. And then I typically mm. ask them, okay, so, so what are they building? Oh, they're building this product. Okay, so how often do they then talk to the people using that product? Oh, they never do. Uh, if they were to go ahead and do that, uh, how many layers would they have to move to? Okay, so there's the sales organizations, there's the key account management. And if they might even not talk to the real customer because they only talk to the representative at the customer's place. So there are just six, seven, eight layers of people between them and the world that are trying to, to build great products. Or, and then you then you can't understand why they just plug in their seven, eight hours a day, right? Yeah, they plug in eight and work six. That's, <laughs> how, that's how we do. Work um, six, build 10. That's what I like to do. Yeah. If my, if my boss is listening, I don't actually do that. That's a joke. All right. <laughs> Maybe so a slide comment because sometimes it also gets religious, I've found, in, around those technical practices because I think we also need to consider the other end of the spectrum where you're such in the, where the product is so uncertain and you literally have no idea whether anybody's going to use it at all. And in those cases, I would much rather see a team hack something together and using more of a lean startup approach in terms of building a product that will just serve the purpose of testing whether you're on the right track. And then mm -hmm. if it turns out you're on the right track, then you might build it to scale to 100,000 users and you might decouple the architecture so you can keep building. But if mm -hmm. uncertainty is so high in the product domain, then you literally, maybe if you remember the Henrik Nieberg uh, cartoon there then you want to build the skateboard and throw away the skateboard mm. once you've tested that people wanted to get faster from a to b and then you might be, want to build the scooter and then you tested the assumption that they might want to go a bit further and then you can essentially end up throwing three products away before you found out that what they really wanted was to go at least 50 miles an hour carry four people and you needed a mileage uh, of, of gas to be beyond a certain level right but that makes sense if you're literally testing yeah. just the basic assumptions of whether people want to pay for a product to go faster from from A to B. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because like in our in our space, Derek and I have seen this quite a bit, where we we have our teams will reference MVP one, MVP two, MVP three, MVP four, and it's all just basically <laughs> oh, building God. upon the original MVP. It's not actually iterating. It's it's sort of that incremental. Like you just mentioned, it's not iterating, it's incrementing. So you build this thing, then you build this thing on top of it, then you build this thing on top of that. So what you end up with, I think we had a guest at one point say this, uh, use this analogy that uh, you're building a skyscraper out of toothpicks, basically, with a toothpick foundation or popsicle stick foundation. You never went back and, and changed that foundation to be concrete. You know, because you didn't actually iterate, you incre you incremented over it over yeah. time. That might actually be a different post, and maybe it should be called uh, MVP is a context-free word. And that would <laughs> hey, also be Derek, we're inspiring because, because I actually think eight. that that that's a real issue out there. That people are getting so religious about the term MVP that yeah. they're forgetting that in one case you're using the MVP to test whether they want to get from 
ADB, A2B, and another case, you know for a fact that that type of transportation is needed. And what you're literally trying to do is find out whether the mileage is okay or they want to pay for a different type of color. And that's mm-hmm. a way different kind of MVP because the uncertainty is not in whether they want to use it, it's in how they want to use your, yeah. your product. So that mm-hmm. is a very different kind of MVP. And both of them are technically correct and you can both relate them to a story in the Lean Startup book. Uh, it's just two different approaches to uh, the problem. I love that. Yeah, and if if we could influence uh, a bullshit uh, agile bullshit post number eight, uh, maybe the the viable piece would be something I would I would want to focus on too. Because what I often see is the minimum is the focus of that thing. Mm. What's the minimum we can build? It's not what's the minimum viable thing. What's the minimum useful thing that we can build? It's what's the minimum that we can build. And often that minimum is not even close to being the useful or viable piece of functionality. So um, again, that's, that's also back to the the. Dropbox case, right? They mm-hmm. their MVP was a, a video showing how a future product would look uh, and getting people to try to imagine that that is actually already built and you can buy it. Uh, so that was not that was viable from a different definition of viable compared to something yeah. you can actually use. But it was still a perfect example of an MVP because they were just trying to test uh, it in a very very uncertain context. Right? Yeah, and that may have been you know viable yeah. for investors, viable for people exactly. that they wanted to get money from, right? Yeah, they didn't need it's viable it. yeah, within exactly. the context of your audience. Yeah, yes. so you can't. Yes. Viable has such a tight relation so to the context that discussing that from a religious perspective, in terms of whether you're mm-hmm. right or and I'm wrong on what viable means, without us discussing the context around mm-hmm. it, that was. It's a totally different topic. There you Sorry, go. Post so number eight. The conversation. Uh, coming <laughs> no, no, soon it's, from, it's uh, great. from Jesper Berg. All right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let's see. Next one. Uh, once on the agile track, teams will be teams will keep improving. And I think it was even broader than that. It was the notion of organizations will keep improving. And and I think that it, it, it's a nice thought. It's a, everybody likes the idea of now we've put this on, on the rail and the, this train will just keep going and it will just keep getting better and better and better and address all the bottlenecks, all the issues regarding technology, products, team compositions, uh, all the things. But I think there's a real thing here that we need to acknowledge that that is not necessarily going to happen. And there's a very, very real risk that I've seen play out many, many times that those organizations are not set up to keep improving. They Mm -hmm. might at the team level improve the way they groom a user story. Or they might at a technical level find that uh, now they've automated uh, something so that they can get it slightly quicker to production without the need for a, a manual process. But the fact that the whole organization will get to a drastically different place over the next 10 years, that might not happen if you don't consider that that you need to do probably more than that. And And I think that's a real thing. And it's something I've been kind of considering for a, a very long time. How do we make sure that as consultants, we don't think so much about making the organization perfect before we exit and thinking much more about how do we enable the organization to just get to a slightly better place next year without our help. And that should be the definition of when we are ready to let that organization go. It's not that they're perfect because they'll never be, but when across layers, across structures, across teams, they can improve on their own in a direction that makes sense and not just improve back to waterfall because they found that on time uh, with the plan scoped and on budget was suddenly be- suddenly became again the, the value driver. Right? Uh, and I think that's 
acknowledging that there is a whole system there that you need to take care of. And you need to find out who drives what at what certain level. Uh, how much can the teams do on their own? How much do we need leaders to, for example, make sure that there's also something going on in terms of funding, incentives, governance, uh, system problems standing in the way of those teams? And is it fair to ask, for example, a single team that's frustrated that the incentive structure is working against shared team ownership? Is it fair that they alone should drive that process of getting that changed across 120 teams in the organization. It might not be. We might need to make sure that there are other people that are also continuously focusing on those issues and taking care of getting those issues resolved. So that's an interesting perspective because you mentioned specifically from the consultant's perspective, like as an outside consultant coming in, when do I know that this organization is set up for success? But I'm curious, if I am an internal team and I'm trying to lead agile transformation, maybe you know, maybe that's a word you don't really like either. But if I'm trying to get my team to become more agile, what is the answer there? Um, is it is it similar in that I'm just setting my teams up to be successful next year and we'll revisit next year? Or is there maybe a different approach that an internal team would take if they want to get their teams to be more agile? Yeah. And, and it's not so much about whether you're using external consultants or not. It's more about if, as an organization, you want to change from a very traditional functional structure, waterfall-driven, uh, leaders, managers, uh, being the ones coordinating work across teams, across people, all that, that stuff, and then you want to change into a more of a self-management, self-organization, uh, agile structure, then you just need to acknowledge that that is a, quite a, a leap, and you need somebody that can actually fuel energy enough into the organization to cover all the bases, because you might need to change management positions. You might need to, over time, change the funding models of how you uh, enable projects to be uh, born inside the organization. You might need to change uh, how finance works and how mm. they uh, follow up on whether you're successful or not. And there are so many dimensions that uh, that takes quite a lot of energy. If you have great people inside, definitely there's an option of having them drive it. But this notion of it being Top down, purely top down from a management leadership perspective, or it being purely bottom up. Uh, I've seen very, 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 very few examples of top down or bottom up working uh, as an organizational tool to get you to a, a, a different place. So I think we need to acknowledge that in most cases, you need to do both. Uh, you need some degree of top management buying in and making sure that those mm -hmm. difficult aspects that require changes to finance, portfolio structures, structures, uh, leadership management responsibilities, that is also anchored high enough so you can actually go ahead and have permission to drive that type of agenda. But you also definitely need to get the people in the frontline people mm -hmm. on board so that they understand it and they don't feel that now they're just scrum team number 120 uh, being given directions to work according to a set of mechanics they don't understand. So yeah. I think there are both elements and you need both the bottom up and the top down approach, but you need them uh, at the same time in parallel. Yeah. That, this is funny because this is something Derek and I have dealt with quite a bit and we've talked about on the show, but this sort of, maybe it's a paradox, a paradox, the, the agile paradox where you have a bunch of people who want to build software in an agile way and they're all for it, but then the, the, mm -hmm. the organization itself doesn't set you up for success, right? Because doing iterative development in shorter periods of time requires a different funding model. It requires different expectations from stakeholders or executives, right? And so when you have executives who fund you once a year and you get a million dollars once a year, 
you you have to ask for money. You have to tell them what you're going to build. You have to tell them when it's going to be ready. You know, you have to set the expectations. Um, nobody wants to hear. Well, we don't know yet. You know, we have to go explore. We're going to iterate. We'll see where and, we're and at. Even if, and even if that works out right, then suddenly you find out that there's a better option. And now exactly. you need and to now go you've through seven it. layers of management <laughs> to be able to change that yeah. direction and yeah, go have to, to a different wait. but better place, right? Uh, because exactly. otherwise they don't understand that you didn't deliver according to the agreement you made six months ago. Exactly. Or you have to wait until the following year you because <laughs> they're still going to say, well, we already gave you money. We're not going to talk about this for another year. We got other stuff to talk about. It's interesting, Jeremy. Um, and yes, for the, the uh, I've, I've often been told this is a chicken and egg problem. You know, well, your organization or your teams want to be more agile, but the organizational structure won't support it, the funding model, all the things you described. Oh, the organization wants us to be more agile, but our teams are structured a certain way and they have mindsets in place to develop things quickly, get them out the door, not worry about the quality of the software, not worry about building function. It's, I think there's actually another way to look at this. It's a chicken and egg problem. So the answer isn't chicken, it's not egg, it's chicken and egg. It's just we don't see the world that way. So we create these analogies that paint a picture of this only black, only white. Uh, yeah, so that I, I feel like what, what we're kind of talking about is how we end up with this sort of agile, <laughs> waterfall agile kind of thing where teams just really build a waterfall project in a scrum cadence essentially with with sprints every two weeks and they do retros and demos and things but they're they're really just iterating or not even iterating they're like like you mentioned um they're basically you know adding on to a feature over time and then they'll release it at the end of the year and, at least uh, i think that's what some people talk about when they talk about uh, teams reduced to being feature factories right mm -hmm. so a bit quicker than usual they are delivering the features that are essentially part of a giant waterfall plan where management is trying to uh, coordinate if you can build these number of features at this point in time then you can build these number of features and then they'll fit together and if they don't i'll try to coordinate the work between you so that we'll get to a place where you can and, and then we might call it agile because there are some scrum mechanics running at the at the team level but being agile in the sense of business agility uh, taking ownership try, trying to develop something that's better than we than we could yesterday and uh, not really yeah. So I'm curious. All right. So this next one, the entire organization should be agile. I'm interested to see how, like, based on the stuff we talked about a second ago, there's probably some nuance there. But uh, I want to dive a little bit into that and kind of talk about that one a little bit. Because I think you can look at it from one perspective. Obviously, you need things to fit together. right? So you cannot have uh, finance working from a waterfall mindset and then have a team trying to deliver iterative because those things will just clash whenever we get to how we follow up on the portfolio of projects, how we use incentives, et cetera, et cetera. So those things, obviously, at an organization level, you need to consider that these pieces need to, to fix it. So in this case, I'm actually going against my own argumentation because it, this is where we start to look at Agile from a more mechanical mm -hmm. level, right? Where we start talk about, okay, every single team out there knows no matter if you're working with legal stuff or you're working with finance stuff or you're working with producing some software, then you need to be kind of a team structure where you need to be cross-functional and you need to be able to uh, self-organize. And uh, and there I, there I just see things starting to clash sometimes a bit because at least from my perspective, where agile at the team level is a perfect fit. That's where there's a high degree of uncertainty in terms of the outcome 
that you're producing. So you need really need to pay close attention to that feedback loop. It's not the same thing you're building over and over again, that there are several skill sets needed to do the job. So you cannot just rely on a single person doing it, it end to end. And there's enough of complexity involved. So it's not just a straightforward thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so you cannot just go ahead and say, okay, if I can just do step one to five, then it'll be great and people will love it and it'll uh, be the right thing to, to do. And that's where there's kind of a perfect fit in terms of the whole working iteratively, getting things out there, collecting feedback, uh, organizing several skill sets around doing the work, et cetera, et cetera. And so at the team level here, that's where we need to be careful that we don't take a team of, let's say, legal experts, where one <laughs> is just an expert in China and they know everything about legislation in China. In China, Another person is dealing with the US market. So if you want to ask anything about legal issues on the US market, that is the person to go to. Some A simple thing like asking them to share workload could require them, to, mm. the US person, to needing to invest two years in understanding the Chinese market. That's just <laughs> yeah. not fair. Uh, right. And they're just going to sit there when you put them together as a standard agile team, looking at each other and saying, why are we here? Why do I need to know so much about the work going on on, on your side? Because there's very little I can do to help. And then yeah. we you have agile consultants coming and saying, that's just because you haven't opened up your mindset. <laughs> uh, we, there must be 10% or 50% in there where you can actually share the work. And then we kind of force them to fit our model yeah. of agile at the team level. Uh, and, and sometimes they're just going to say, I've also seen examples where one person was kind of maintaining the whole office setup inside the organization, uh, Word, PowerPoint, making sure that that whole package was bought at the right price and installed and implemented and whatever. And another person was fixing the hardware of the laptops out there when people had a problem with their uh, CPU or the screen was broken or whatever. And because everybody needed to be in a team, they were part of the same team. And again, they were looking at each other saying, why am I here? Why are you thinking of this? This team structure makes no sense whatsoever. We might all, we might all be kind of a, a staff function, but uh, there's very little we can do to share work. And we might have a team building exercise once in a while. And it's fun to go play paintball, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Yeah. So the, from my, my takeaway from this one really is, is, again, sort of speaking to the first point in that on the first one, the engineering teams don't all have to work together. But this one's saying more broadly, people outside of the engineering t function may or may not need agile at all there's probably some aspects they could take like you just mentioned that sort of team building kind of building a safe environment maybe, maybe there's a retro every couple of weeks where they talk about what's working what's not but but they don't have to follow agile just because one one organization or one team within the organization is following agile that's sort of accurate is that they sum it up yeah and, and i don't think we should eliminate the possibilities that there are other applications of agile out there so i think in organizations where it doesn't make sense to have a marketing person within a uh, development team, and sometimes that's just not feasible. Uh, then we've seen great examples of marketing teams working more or less with a whole uh, spectrum of agile practices because it is a really fast-paced environment. You can do really small vertical slices or MVPs. You can get it out there. You can test the effect. You can iterate and do better instead of those big bang marketing campaigns where you invest six months in building the perfect setup. So I think there are many applications, but we just at least consider those three factors I mentioned in the beginning before you just blindly uh, force people to, to work with the whole spectrum of agile uh, principles and practices.
used to have a guy that the guy that taught me how to shoot basketball, he used to have this super complicated process about how to get like when you're ready to shoot the ball, you had to have your like your arm straight like this had to be right over your toe, your foot had to be like this, your shoulders had to be like this, like this. And then he kept training people over the years on how to shoot. That was his like job basically, or what he did in schools and things like that. And then he got older and he realized that kids aren't listening to him. And they keep doing this and they keep doing this and this and this and this and this. And that's just how they do it. And what he realized was like, he's like, I just need to make it simpler for them so that they do the most important stuff right away. And so he's like, just put the ball on your hand, hold it up. If you can hold it up, you're ready to shoot. That's what he told them. He gave them a simpler starting position. And when we're talking about like getting an organization ready uh, or prepping them for an agile transformation, it's, it's tough because I think they're stuck with what they have, but sometimes they have a simpler view of it. Maybe they're more likely to at least make more shots, you know? I don't know. That's my analogy of the day. Couldn't live without That's what I give. That's what yeah, I offer. It actually reminds me that I'm riding a mountain bike and I saw all of these complicated YouTube videos about how you should turn flat corners and you should all sorts of stuff. You need to have the weight on the upper arm instead of the lower arm, which is really not very natural. You need to lean the bike much more into the turn, but keep your body much, upper body much more uh, straight. And all those things are just, it's so hard to combine and you need to get your one knee inside the turn and the other should, and you can't really keep track of all those when you're practicing. And then I saw this other guy saying, okay, what the only thing you need to pay attention to, lean the bike much, much more than you ever would. Just get it in and just like, it should be almost just a horizontal ride, uh, much more than you ever thought you would need. And the other thing, make sure that you pressure, put pressure on those tires into the turn. And those two things will make sure you do all the rest of the 700 things you need to remember <laughs> correctly, because you cannot yeah. lean the bike without opening your knees up. As otherwise, the frame simply yeah. won't fit between your legs, and so the th other things just follow naturally from that simple piece of advice. So I think that's a great analogy. Let's see, last one, new one that just got added the other day. Uh, fixed cadence of retrospectives is the best way for teams and organizations to improve. I'm curious what how how you. I haven't had a chance to read this one because you just added it recently. But <laughs> yeah. talk a little bit about this one because I'm I'm interested to hear this one. I thought it was especially funny because now the program here is called Retro Time. Oh, yeah. It's very, uh, very, retrospect and, is very dear to our heart. Yeah. So it's not, and again, uh, uh, don't get me wrong. It's not that I have a problem with retrospectives. So retrospectives are great for problem solving, and the books out there will help you a lot in terms of structuring the format so you don't go ahead and just finding a lot of problems without also getting some actions in place to solve them. All that stuff, that's great and fine. But I think there's a flaw that most people seem to not understand. And that is uh, like the lean, Western lean companies out there trying to copy the approach from Toyota and other Japanese manufacturers back in the 90s. They were doing problem solving on their current process. And it's, it falls naturally. Look at how you work, find out what's wrong, solve that problem. And it, it, it's so natural that we don't even question whether that is the fundamentally right approach towards continuous improvement. But the thing is, the way Toyota does is, is they look at how they want to work. So they define a ideal state. So that could be, we want to release continuously on-demand full automation. And then they think about what is standing in between us and being able to achieve that condition. 
could be the same. We want a structure with end-to-end teams, they're stable and they're able to self-organize. What is standing right now between us and that uh, condition? And that is a different, it might be sound like just a slight change of wording, but it is mm-hmm. absolutely fundamental. And also turns out that psychologists have found out that our brains are much better at working towards something we like rather than away from something we don't like. Mm-hmm. And But our retrospectives are essentially set up to almost make us exclusively focus on what we don't like and make sure that we get away from that state. Mm. So I'm not saying throw away your retrospectives. I'm just saying maybe add a bit of that future-spective dialogue in there. Ah, maybe don't look at problems only from the perspective of what, what's wrong with what you do now, but also what's standing between you and where you want to, to be. And if I could just, with sessions like this, have 1% more teams considering that approach as well as the traditional approach, I think we would see organizations uh, with people that are motivated to a higher degree, solving problems that are more important and getting also the organization around them involved in that and solving those obstacles towards those uh, ideal states uh, in a more effective way. Yeah, so, so that I... was kind of the essence of that. The book. <clears throat> I, I love that. Yeah, that idea of future-spective. That's really awesome. I love it. I hope you're coining that. If, if that's like something you made up, you should put a little trademark and like... Charge no, 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 it's not mine. Oh, dang it. All right. Well, <laughs> anyway, but the, um, the, the idea with retros, I always found kind of intriguing because it's sort of, you know, every two weeks, like you're trying to see what went well and what didn't go well. And I always find it strange that you wait two weeks to talk about something that's not going well. And like, let's say Monday of the first day, first week of the sprint, you do two week sprints, something happens on Monday and you realize that isn't going well. Do you keep that process in place until next to next Monday or two Mondays from now when you do the retrospective to talk about how this thing went bad two weeks ago and what you can do to fix it? And one of the things I really like about lean, Derek and I work in an organization that's all about lean. And one of the things I love about lean is this idea that, you know, somebody on the shop floor can just pull the, the, the switch and stop everything as soon as they see something going wrong. Right. They don't have to go wait and go up the chain of command and get approval. And weeks later, they can stop the production line. They can just stop it, you know. And when I think about retros, I think it's sort of one of those things. And, and I'm, I'm curious to get your, your perspective because I'm, I'm not an engineer, by the way. I'm a UX designer. So <laughs> this is coming from maybe an outside perspective. But I like that idea in Lean where I can just stop and say, look, it's Monday, first day of the sprint. Are we going to keep doing this for two weeks or can we just change this thing today because this isn't working? You know, and I, I, when, I, when I read your, your thing about the fixed cadence, that's the first thing I thought of is why wait two weeks later or two weeks to do this. Why can't we just do it when we, you know, solve the problem when we need to solve it? Um, which is different from what, obviously what you're talking about, which is thinking future kind of process and which is maybe different from what Toyota was kind of thinking. But anyway, I'm curious what yeah, your thoughts so, are. Does so, that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, so I think it's essential to acknowledge that both things need to exist. And mm-hmm. and uh, if we want to get out of sure that like the whole thing, trying to copy uh, lean manufacturing into a product development context. There's a lot of problems in there, and I'm much more aligned with Don Reinertsen and, and others uh, than the, the Jeffrey Likers out there in terms of how you should approach that. But that discussion set aside, in terms of reflect, making sure that you understand the difference between reactive problem solving mm. and then what is what a retrospective is meant to do, which is kind of looking at the, the longer perspective. So I fully agree with you, Jeremy. If there, if you find out that right now you're creating tons of bugs in a certain area, 
because there's something fundamentally wrong with how you release or how something is feature flagged or whatever. Fix that right here, right now. Uh, don't wait until a retrospective two weeks away from now where you can only plan how to solve and then be, it might be another week before you mm -hmm. actually get some capacity to, to work on it, right? Uh, but that is more in the reactive problem solving space. And sometimes obviously we find problems that are so big that we cannot just do them right now. And that's fine too, as long as we uh, make sure that they don't, they're not forgotten. But I think those belong to two different mindsets. And that's also what's going on in a place like Toyota. You have the reactive problem solving. There's a defect right now. Let's make sure that the next 17 car doors do not get the same kind of defect. So let's solve it by stopping the line. And then there is the, this is where we want to work with a, a smaller degree of work in progress. So we want that inventory between me and the next station to be four instead of five. So I'm continuously working towards a future target that's better than what we're working right now. And the reactive problem solving approach would never ever find it a great idea for you to reduce that from, from five to four, right? Because that would only, only turn into more problems for you. So why would you go ahead and, mm -hmm. and do that? Derek and I worked on a team not long ago, or I guess it was long ago now, two years ago or so. Uh, and we did this, uh, you know, instead of doing a postmortem, we did a premortem when we, we were going to start a brand new thing, a big thing. And we wanted to talk about, you know, let's let's think if we if we thought, you know, a year ahead, two years ahead and this thing um, ended for some reason, why would it why would it fail? Why would it go wrong? And what could we do now to keep that? scenario from happening. So we, it was sort of an exercise where we went through a whole bunch of possibilities and planned ahead of time for the things that were potentially going to go wrong. You know, what were, were some risks and, 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 and outline those risks and things like that instead of waiting until we were done to do a postmortem and say, what will we do next time to fix it? And it's, it's not exactly the same. Obviously, it's, it's a little bit different here, but it's sort of on the same lines. Do that stuff before anything goes wrong. Think about how you want to work and, and work that way and work towards that way versus waiting until something breaks to say, let's fix it. I, I love that idea. Yeah, we did the same thing on a $100 million program where before we started, we were to write the, the newspaper article about this program failing <laughs> spectacularly and how it would get into the news and be all over the country. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is totally unrelated to yeah. this, but this is something my team has started doing when we hire people. We would write a thank you note for that position a year from now and say, thank you for all the things you've done. <laughs> and we would use that as a way to sort of ah, cool. sort of uh, understand what this role would be doing if they were to start. Right. And, and is this person the person for that idea. role? You know, thank you for achieving this and thank you for helping us come together on that or whatever it is. Um, and so a similar kind of thing, you know, unrelated is it's talking about like this role, but that that future thank you note. You know, what would this if, if we could thank you for having if a user could thank thank the, the product team for building this tool, what would they say, you know, a year from now? It's kind of maybe a similar kind of thing on that newspaper article you're talking about, but the, the opposite, I guess, because that would be <laughs> this thing failed. I love that idea, though, the newspaper, <laughs> what would the newspaper article say if this thing failed? What would be impacted? How many things would go wrong and and what would yeah. what would be? It was Jeremy's yeah, fault. <laughs> the UX was terrible. <laughs> all right. Well, that was all of them. So uh, I love it. Anything else to add or any maybe future ideas or things that you're you're coming up with that you want to maybe talk about? Yeah. So just in a final, I'm working on a, an article called uh, The Paradox of the Agile PMO. And, and that's, I don't know if it's the same mm -hmm. in US, but right now the whole PMO uh, 
meaning portfolio management of this thing is really okay. trending and everybody wants an agile portfolio process and and the whole thing just it it seems to come from a place that's so far away from the principles that we're trying to change inside organizations and people don't even consider it all they see are now great options that need to be validated by a team of uh, managers and they're talking about how can we make this more collaborative and it's turned the whole thing around because like where at least i started was to say uh, years ago saying okay so how can we make this business unit own their own portfolio rather than saying okay how can we gather the entire portfolio or the entire organization to make sure that everything is merged together and now people don't even know their or own their own innovation space anymore and they feel that they're just top managers pushing random products they don't understand onto their portfolio right and so it seems that the whole thing is just backwards and it's coming from a place i don't necessarily think is a, is a very good place to to be but there's so much uh, like, like consultant companies obviously going crazy because how many mm -hmm. hours do you now get to spend with senior managers on making sure they get this now new lean portfolio management process in place and you can't simply be modern and agile without it right so it's it's very attractive from a consultant perspective organizations just seem to love it and want more of it and i'm just yeah yeah i was asked to go yeah. in and do something similar to that and i just i'll gladly help you solve the problem of portfolio management but i I'm, it's going to be from a very different angle than what you suggested mm -hmm. that's super fascinating yeah that's yeah. uh i'd love to read that let us know when that's up and we'll we'll post it on our wherever we post yeah we'll share, we'll share it out on our from all, our all five twitter too. followers will, will uh, i'm sure love to read that <laughs> maybe i might be able to set it now uh my, my buddy who who used to work for a large company uh, with me um he used to say big companies uh man when they make a mistake they sure stick with it <laughs> um he used to say and he used to crack me up so so jesper any um advice for anybody that might be on a team that realizes oh man we're falling for all this agile bullshit any advice that you could give them to help them maybe figure out a better way? And, and from that's, again, from the team level, sometimes there are just things that are really difficult to fix. So, so for example, if you're really frustrated about an uh, incentives uh, awarding individuals rather than a shared team ownership, maybe just saying, okay, is there any way we can just ignore that? And, and we know it's there and we know somebody's going to want to talk to us a year from now about how we form, but maybe we can shift our attention to a different place. So it's not the center of attention every day, even though, even if there are still policies out mm. there that's working against us, but on the other side, make sure, because I see that happening a lot, like that circle of influence, when people define it, it becomes so small that literally you're not moving anything that will matter at all. Like it's going to be small little details and it's not going to, get you to a better place. So also don't think too narrowly about what you can change because often there's actually a lot of things you can do and you can talk to other teams and you can get their buy-in to support the same thing and you can talk to your manager and you might not be able to fully control the whole process of changing it, but you can definitely influence it and you can invite those three senior managers to have a discussion about changing it and you can make sure that before you did that, you already talked to five other teams and they said the exact same thing. So you've got your your case build up or already, because if we want to define that circle of influence in terms of us being in full control of whatever improvement we want to make, it's going to be about grooming a user story, right? It's going to be about making a change to maybe even the deployment pipeline, because that's sometimes also shared uh, across systems, right? So yeah, so be careful in 
translating a constraint into something that's going to govern everything you do and be careful in thinking too narrowly about what you can teach. That would probably be my Right on. I love it. All right. So uh, just to summarize our, our talk today, I was taking some notes as we were chatting, uh, but just, just scaling frameworks just because they might work for big organizations to scale a bunch of people to work on one product doesn't mean it's going to work for your smaller team. So don't use those large scaling frameworks to standardize Scrum on a smaller team. And by the way, stop me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Some of took wrong notes. Uh, but uh, those common metrics might not be a good indicator for an effective team. Um, you know, more, think more about like the why behind it, your North Star, why you're doing the things that you're doing. Maybe shorter lead time is a better example, things like that. Once uh, uh, once an org gets on the agile track, they're going to just, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to keep going. So don't don't assume that they can just sort of hands off, go do their thing. They might need some of this coaching maybe over time. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe start thinking about maybe how the org can be set up for future success versus just focusing on whatever metrics or whatever you think is, is valuable for for agile. Not every team in your organization needs to be agile, so don't don't assume all your teams are are are, are going to function the same way. Um, then, and lastly, this idea of of retros don't don't just wait two weeks to do your retro. Don't think about what went wrong. Think about future perspectives. How do you want to work and work towards that? And then I think I missed the first one about you know the standard process. The teams might want to function different ways. Let the teams be more autonomous. Let them figure out what works for them. And I think we didn't mention this today, but in the article you mentioned there might be some standard across teams when they come to touch points. So make sure you standardize the touch points. But that doesn't mean every team needs to function and work exactly the same. We process over people. Or people over process. I had that backwards. That's wrong. Pro- process. Yeah, people you. over process. Yeah, that's all right. For reminding me about the the interface because I think that's a yeah. conversation that's just not getting enough attention. So right you don't need to standardize the whole thing behind that interface. It's exactly the same that we use uh, when we try to decouple architectures and use APIs to communicate with. And that's because we want some freedom to do the implementation behind that API as we see fit and change it without having to ask everybody for permission. And it's exactly the same with agile processes. All right. Cool, man. All right. So uh, we got a little game that we like to play uh, called This or That, where we just spend a couple minutes. We ask you a bunch of random questions and you just first thing that comes to your head. You don't need to even take any time to think about it. Uh, Just helps our, our listeners get to know Jesper a little bit better. How's that sound? Great. And a bit nervous. Ah, uh, it's all right. You, there's only one oh, where Derek and I, except for one. There's only one except where one Derek course. and I will really judge you, uh, but we'll, you know, <laughs> you'll know because I'll get real close to the camera. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's say I'm going to set a little timer here for two minutes. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Dog or cat? Cat. All right. Uh, let's see. Ice cream cone or a cup? Ice cream cone. All right. Living documents or the living dead? Living documents. All right. Big team or small team? Small <laughs> team. All right. Mac or PC? Easy. IDE or Notepad? Uh, I don't think I get the difference. Oh, IDE, I, you know, like fancy <laughs> IDE with all the options versus <laughs> like a development environment, like IntelliJ yeah. ah, versus okay. just Word. Word. Ah, okay, or yeah, Word. then yeah. IDE. Sorry. <laughs> IDE, okay. It's Visual been too long since I coded anything. <laughs> Sorry. Visual <laughs> Studio or IntelliJ? Uh, Visual Studio. All right. Uh, this, this is from 2008. That's right. Consultants don't, don't, that don't code anymore. They just tell other people what to code. All right. Uh, let's see. Space Invaders or Pong? Space Invaders. All right. Tabs or Spaces? Tabs. All right. This one's really important. Uh, buttons or Zippers? Zippers. 
All right. Uh, so let's see. We got a few here that are uh, these are the ones that Derek and I might judge you. So, you know, that's OK. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? I'll give you a hint. It's Star, Star Wars. Trek. Oh, Derek. He said Star Wars. The correct answer <laughs> was Star no. Trek. Yes, <laughs> that's all right. We won't. Judge. All right. <laughs> we won't tell kidding. your wife about this next one. Love or money? Love. Love, there we go. All right, right. good answer. All right, if your wife ever listens, she'll know what you said. All right, um, so we've got a few questions here. Uh, since you wrote a whole series about Agile bullshit, we got some questions for you about bulls. All right, <laughs> uh, the Chicago Bulls or the Chicago Bears? Chicago Bulls. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, bull market or bear market? Bear market? I have no uh, idea. <laughs> I, think, I think bulls better. Right. All right, bull... Yeah, the bulls <laughs> yeah. when they're going bull up. fight or cage fight? Bullfight. All right. This is. A, what is what, I don't know what it means. A, a, a bullfight, like the, you know, the Spanish uh, bullfight where they like fight the bull and then they. Like a, like but what an, is the uh, other one? Cage, oh, cage fight, like two dudes fighting cage? in a cage. Ah, okay. <laughs> like then cage fight. Like cage fight. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Uh, this is a comical question. Two bulls fighting in a cage. Oh yeah, bull, Oh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I'd, I'd pay to see that. Um, all right. Uh, this one's a comic book question: Bullseye or Hawkeye? I don't know. Anyone. They're basically the same. <laughs> I think they're DC, right, Derek? I'm not mistaken. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. Hawkeye. I'm, Hawkeye's believe it or not, I'm not a Hawkeye's comic book guy. guy. Anyway, a Bullseye might be DC. You know how they always have like the same character? They just sort of change them up. One DC versus Marvel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a bow and yeah, arrow guy. Like, yeah, anyway, the, that's yeah. basically the same. All right. This is the last one. It's really important. Yeah. Bullshit or horseshit? Uh, in terms of what? I don't know. Just bullshit. The whole point of these questions is they don't make any sense. Uh, okay. Jesper, that's, <laughs> so you, you figured that one out pretty good. Yeah. All right. So that's, you, that's, it should be U.S. based. To yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, funny. Yeah, we we got, had we got, um, uh, re, we got a regional. We've had uh, we've had a couple yeah. of uh, of um, British people on the show and I ask them things like, you know, agile or agile or you know like um oasis or blur or like you know british uh, bands and stuff anyway american football or real football that's a good one uh, <laughs> yeah the thing is i'm really the odd one out there because i actually enjoy watching american football oh yeah all summer. right there you go well, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that yeah, they're okay, very great. different sports oh, i don't know they're both called football but very different sports yeah, but there's just a lot more things yeah. happening I yeah it is it is, it is it is i get i don't have the patience for it so yeah, I feel you. All right. So, uh, yes, before you get out of here, any um, any closing thoughts, anything you want to share, anything upcoming you want to promote or plug, uh, any upcoming events, speaking events, something like that? All right. Well, well why don't you uh, list off some of your social stuff that everybody can follow you? You got, like, uh, Twitter or Facebook or uh, – The thing is, like, I'm okay. terrible at, at social Dude. media. It, it's just because I've had some time that I've started writing oh, yeah. something. Oh, yeah, us too, man. We, we have we – have uh, No, it's terrible. Like, we have I have Twitter. a Facebook profile, but it's only because <laughs> my kids, they play soccer and stuff, and you need to be on Facebook too. Coordinate. Oh, dude, stuff. That's I know. Pretty yeah, much my the kids. Only is, reason why I have a that is the only reason I have. I actually have a lurker account. Anybody out there listening, you can't add me as a friend. I have no friends, and it's just to follow school and clubs and all that other crap where they post stuff yeah. on Facebook. It drives me crazy. I'm like, just use email. It drives me nuts. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I looked you up on trying to get like some of your links and stuff. I found you on Twitter, and the last post was I think like 2019. <laughs> I was like, well, he clearly doesn't use this anymore. Ah, I, I thought it would have been 2017. If uh, <laughs> if it wasn't for Derek, um, we wouldn't post anything at all. Derek is just he usually posts about basketball on Twitter. So um, anyway, all right, well, cool. Well, so that's it from us, Derek. I got nothing else. You got anything else for Jesper here before we get out of here? No, I just want to say thank you. It was a great conversation, and uh, I, I wish you uh, luck in your work and continued right on, success. Man. Thank yeah. you for having me. 
Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. So make sure you check out Jesper. We'll put some links to his website and stuff in the show notes. And uh, check us out on RetroTimePodcast.com. Get yourself some stickers, RetroTimePodcast.com slash stickers. And if you leave a five-star review, you get your very own review jam at some point in the future when Derek and I get around to writing it. So until (laughs) next time, we'll see you around, guys. Take it easy. Jeremy, before you continue, before we did this, we talked, uh, we had a little, you know, we, we met with Jesper, you know, we met him and everything. Now that you did that intro, I'm incredibly intimidated. I got to say, my heart's beating fast. I got a whole thing. But he's anyway, a, he's a, I'm very excited. And, he's and the real deal, man. You're listening. You should be intimidated, too. No, he's a very, very I'm nice kidding. man. I'm kidding. He's, he's fantastic. Very... All right. So, yeah, let's, so let's far, get so good. Let's get started. With the like minute, so, so far within this minute, he's been, he's been great.